is episode 8 of A Loaf More for July 29th, 2012. Welcome to episode 8 of Alohomora. Regrettably, I was not on the last episode. I had to tackle a unicorn. My name is Noah Freed. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Rosie Morris, and this is Jessica, who is a moderator on our Alohomora forums, otherwise known as Wise Old Baker. Say hello, Jessica. Hello, everybody. Hey, hey, Jessica, can you tell us about that that name? Where does that come from? I like it. Well, um... My uh, my last name's Baker, and a lot of people call me Baker, uh, Baker the Baker, because I like to bake, and Ooh. I wanted to be a baker. And then I had other friends who called me um, the Wise Old Owl, because um, I like to read a lot of articles, so I know a lot of random information. So when they asked me a question, I usually had an answer. So I just combined the two together and got Wise Old Baker. That's cool. It it has a good flow. And didn't you write a few essays for the for main site as well, quibbles? Yep, I wrote um, The Emancipation of the Sorting Hat and, um, oh, I forgot the other one. It was about the uh, the little island they all went to in the beginning of the book. Yeah, yeah, you were looking at, you were like close reading the, the shack. Yeah, the shrieking shack, or not the shrieking shack, but the shack on the water or something like that, on the rock. If you if you actually check MuggleNet, we made your essay Quibble of the Week this week. Oh, really? I didn't see yeah. that. We did. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, just so you know, everyone should check that out. Wise Old Baker and many other forum goers in Alohomora have uh, discussed the sorting hat and how sorting works. We talk about that on every show, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But uh, didn't, didn't you say in your essay that we all have to kind of settle down and realize that the sorting hat is, is actually right, generally with its sortings, and we can't be cross-sorting characters like Hagrid? Well, I mean, it's not so much cross-sorting, it just seems like we oversimplify um, the sorting situation. Like, we always kind of break apart the personalities, but pick out only certain things and throw them into that house based on that kind of thing. It seems more complex than that. It just seems like, um, like with Hermione, everybody kind of says, oh, well, she has, like, um, she's such a Ravenclaw at this point, but really... She's mostly a Gryffindor throughout the entire story. Yeah, she's intelligent. Yeah, she has that book smarts to her. But to me, it doesn't seem like she really has Ravenclaw qualities based off of what I read in the books, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like people (laughs) often go by stereotypes for all the houses and, you know, too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. We should all trust in the hat. But still an interesting conversation to have, you know. It is. Well, before we before we jump into our, our last chapter of Philosopher's Stone, which it's crazy that we've already made it through the first book, but uh, we're going to take a look back at um, some of the comments you guys gave us uh, about our last episode from chapters 15 and 16 of Philosopher's Stone. Uh, so our first comment comes regarding the topic of unicorns, and this is on our main site from Ra Ra Ravenclaw, someone who's very spirited. And the comment says, I was just thinking in regards to the unicorns. I know it's looking at the quote from a very superficial level. However, the quote does superficially make reference to the, li- to the lips. You will have but a half-life, a curse life, from the moment the blood touches your lips. What if you somehow injected this into a person? I know it seems really far-fetched, but I'm interested to see what others think about the idea. 
if I never physically, if it never physically touches your lips, would you still be cursed? What if you took blood blood from a unicorn without killing it? Yeah, I thought that was a great thought. Many people talked about that in the forums, and it's what I was thinking about when I was actually listening. I mean, didn't Cat bring up that if you didn't slay the unicorn, could you still like drink the blood if it was just kind of dead and you found it? Would you still be cursed? Yeah, she did, and actually, someone else um, from our forums, uh, the username is Zero Regredians, uh, Zio Regredians, excuse me, says that I think there is something about actually consuming the blood, taking the essence of something so pure into your body in such a way that curses you. So even if you put the unicorn out of its misery, maybe the slaying, in that case, wouldn't have a negative effect on you. But I feel that drinking its blood would. Well, that's just a lot of blood to waste if, the, if, you're, if it's dead, you know? But I think I mean, the Ra Ra Ravenclaw comment was about, like, what if the blood wasn't ingested? What if it was injected? So if someone else, like, with a syringe injected you with the blood, would you still be cursed? Or would the hmm. injector be cursed? I don't think the injector could be cursed because the blood never touches them. I guess the question is, does the blood have enough for lack of a better word, magic about it to know the intent of that person being injected. And if the curse lies with the intent or with the the actual ingestion. But uh, it seems to me that something like this that has such magical properties, I mean, we already know about dragon's blood and it has many uses. Why isn't there a similar study done with unicorn blood? I guess we don't know enough about that, but... I guess what I'm asking is, why are unicorns held to a higher standard than dragons? It seems like we're fine using dragon's blood. I think the thing is, is nobody has a problem really taking blood from a dragon. But like a unicorn, since it's like representing that kind of purity, people are kind of probably not willing to go up and try to kill it to study the blood. Because it has this curse attached. Well, not even just that. Maybe it's just something that's like symbolic... In the sense of innocence, why would you kill something innocent for the sake of science when you can just take for the fact that, you know, if you touch the blood, you get the kind of life that's cursed or whatever. But uh, to kill it, just to study it, they probably just have that ethic against it. Possibly. Yeah, it's, like, it's a creature of purity and it's really respected, so you wouldn't want to kill it or injure it in any kind of way with the curse or without it. Do you guys notice that there's so much connection to, like, purity and and blood throughout the entire series? I mean, even at the end of this, uh, the last chapter that we're going to finish today, I believe that uh, there's some mention of the fact that Harry is, Harry is so good, and because he's so good, Quirrell can't touch him, and we know that's because of the love that's in Harry's blood. So there's kind of a sense that Harry is also this very pure creature, or at least Dumbledore says so, and something's, like... And somehow Harry's blood is symbolic, also with the unicorn. It's pure, and there are dark forces after it, or after its blood. So Harry is a unicorn. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) (laughs) If only we knew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, and, and also because of the fact that, and we'll talk about this in other books, but how Dumbledore sort of has to sacrifice this pure creature, too, is... It's definitely something to think about. Right. Or maybe he doesn't quite know yet, know yet because I think he doesn't realize about Horcruxes until the diary in, Ch- in Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, at a, at a certain point, he will he will 
kind of decide to sacrifice Harry for the greater good. Yeah. Next comment. Yeah, thank you guys for those. Those were definitely interesting. Um, the the next comment comes um, regarding werewolves and wizards and unicorns, and this comes from our forums from um, Phoenix, and it's more on Rosie's um, triangle paradox. So the idea that unicorns are greater than werewolves, werewolves are greater than wizards, and wizards are greater, greater than unicorns. And uh, the user says, I agree that this is confusing and a very good observation too. But I think the paradox is solvable if you assume that it is not the same kind of magic that is required to deal with unicorns and werewolves. Do we know anything about how you catch a unicorn? Maybe you can corner it or lure it into a trap. I'm sure it's something along those lines, since Quirrell seems to be brainy rather than sporty. When dealing with a werewolf, however, the last thing you want to do is corner it. Your best chance is to get away from it, whereas with Unicorn, you have a more or less infinite number of tries. The worst thing it can do is escape. Also, since werewolves are better acquainted with humans, maybe they can anticipate the moves of a wizard better than a Unicorn can. In any case, I'm going to play a wizard version of Rock, Paper, Scissors from now on. <laughs> It's definitely going to be a fun game. I want to work out yeah. the hand movements for it. <laughs> Can we quickly recap? I wasn't on the last episode. What's the, what is the correlation between unicorn, werewolf, sure. and wizard? Um, I was just wondering because um, Hagrid says that he's never known a unicorn to be injured before. Um, and obviously we see that Quirrell has somehow managed to kind of capture and injure this unicorn. Um, but we also hear... Um, I think it's Draco saying that um, something it was something about werewolves and the fact that werewolves were faster than wizards um, but wizards can somehow capture a unicorn says if they were faster than a unicorn but the unicorn would be faster than the werewolf so it was like right. a whole speed thing um, well wouldn't you, you know, say the coral Quirrell's kind of not your average wizard and if Hagrid hasn't seen it then probably wizards at large in general can't catch unicorns especially since they're so uh, mystical and wispy so <laughs> maybe maybe Quirrell was influenced maybe by Voldemort's powers in that section and he was able to move faster than your average um, wizard yeah. yeah I would say so I think that's that's the exception here with Coral. But I think In that's kind case, of the opposite yeah. of what Phoenix is saying. Phoenix is saying that you need to be fast to escape from the werewolf, but you need to be brainy and you need to kind of be clever to capture a unicorn. Kind of outsmart Oh, it. I see, I see. Yeah, I mean, if if, if we want to spin off a bunch of a different, different games and stuff, that's pretty cool. I mean, Rock, Paper, Scissors is pretty boring. <laughs> As we know. So yeah, so we now have werewolves, wizards, unicorns as our new new version of it. Lovely. Let's see you all playing at, at LeakyCon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still thinking about the symbols for this game. I mean, I guess you know a unicorn could just be a finger, you know, for the horn. Um, now what about werewolves? But then werewolf, that could be like a wizard wand. Yeah. A werewolf is like one hand on top of another, kind of going like. Crah. I know you can't see it. Nobody can see it, but it looks great. <laughs> Maybe they need to be like whole body positions. So a werewolf would be like claws. Oh my gosh! A yes, make, like a wand, make this a game full body activity. Yes, <laughs> you just you just represent the actual creature with your whole body. Yes, 
<laughs> this is what we this is what we are going to play at LeakyCon. I can promise you that. <laughs> oh man. Alright, before we get any more crazy ideas on that. <laughs> um regarding our discussion last week about drinking, which mostly came up with Hagrid, as per the <laughs> usual. Um, this comment comes from the main site and it is from NB underscore Potter Nerd. And uh, it says, what is the drinking age in the wizarding world? We know that butterbeer is alcoholic because Winky gets drunk off of it in Goblet of Fire, yet students frequently drink butterbeer. I always assumed there was no drinking age as the wizarding world is very old fashioned. Only the stronger drinks like fire whiskey have a set age. I don't well, I think, think the butterbeer is... Yeah. Butterbeer isn't alcoholic. I think it, if it is, it's like uh, ginger beer or root beer. Um, it's, it's, it's enough such that Winky can get drunk on it. Yeah, later yeah. but yeah. not a, like a, a human or a wizard. Rosie, does that make sense? Are there drinks in the in the UK that are maybe slightly alcoholic, but are such that you know anybody can drink drink them? Um, kind of fine. I guess like like saying like ginger beer, and um, I guess to an extent, very kind of weak ciders, but not really. Um, I just I don't think butter beer is meant to be alcoholic to to humans. So then, do we think that the Wizarding World is just a bit more alcoholic than the Muggle World, for whatever reason? <laughs> I I think so. I think they're a bunch of old put back. Yeah, they're just putting a lot back. <laughs> but we only ever see the the young people drinking butterbeer when everyone else kind of gets fire whiskey and all the older, all the, the stronger drinks. So I always just assumed that there was a drinking age and that butterbeer didn't count. Because like, isn't Ron really excited about? Um, being able to get fire whiskey from the um, hogshead. the hogshead because it's kind of not not a very reputable establishment. <laughs> right. So there is like a moral aspect to not giving younger kids alcohol, which would make butterbeer not alcoholic. All right. Yeah, that, 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 that would seem so, or at least. Um, Alcoholic for house elves, but maybe they're reacting to some other part of the the beverage. I, I, I don't really know. but I always assumed it was like the sugar in the butter beer. Like, I know there's a disease where if you eat like a certain kind of cracker, somebody could get like drunk off the sugar in their blood or something. I always figured that the same thing happened to Winky. Huh. I mean, that's possible. And if you've gone to the wizarding world of, of Harry Potter, butter beer is very sugary. Yeah. Hmm. But well, isn't it cream soda or something in, in Butterbeer that makes it... In Muggle Butterbeer, at least. Oh, cream soda, caramel. Is it good? Sugars. I've never had it. Um, I... Personally, I wasn't a fan. Kind of tough to drink, but, you know... I bet, like, ten-year-olds would love it. Because it's, like, mm. so much sugar and stuff. And you're just like, oh my god! Yeah. So, <laughs> I can imagine the kids going to Hogsmeade. You know, they, they love their Butterbeers. But you kind of have to... <laughs> very, very sweet. Mm, yeah. Hmm. Not for the house elf hearts. <laughs> Clearly, at least not Winky, because that girl's going nutso all the time with hers. All right. So, we our next comment comes from our newest way for you guys to get in touch with us. Um, and it's through our phone number and someone who left a voicemail. So, we're going to go ahead and play that now. Uh, hey guys, this is Patrick from Omaha, Nebraska, and I just wanted to say that um, on your last episode, episode 7, you guys were talking about um, Filch, and it was in context of uh, him sending them off to the forest and all that stuff, and uh, just how in general he 
is just a pretty bad dude, but I think you guys were sort of approaching it from the standpoint that he is, um, I don't know, I don't know, um, sort of jealous of the of the people with magic and all that stuff, but I actually think that if you look at the way Filch acts throughout the whole series, yes, there are times when he obviously is supporting the, of the dark arts and then Snape and, and all that stuff when Snape takes over the school, but I think also possibly think of it as as maybe he is coming at it from the perspective of Dumbledore, not necessarily Dumbledore, but he is supposed to sort of instill not necessarily fear, but caution in all of the first years and second years and all of the younger kids, I guess. But maybe it's one of his jobs to sort of instill sort of a sense of caution and I suppose a sense of fear um, in the kids so that they, they don't try to break as many rules. So the basic idea is that Filch tries to scare the kids so that they don't Get into get into trouble by being a real hard ass. Wow, great great comment, Patrick. That was that was uh, that's pretty cool. And um, yeah, just on that, I feel like it's true that Filch does have that duty to possibly do that. But I think it's more just his personality quirk. I think he is just a nasty fella, and he loves to threaten kids all on his own. So sure, he doesn't want them to spoil school rules, but man, I think he gets some pleasure out of it too. And if he is trying to just scare them into behaving, it doesn't seem to be working very well. You'd think after years and years of trying that, it would, you know, you would learn that it's not working. <laughs> he just yeah. doesn't like people and likes to make people miserable. Well, I mean, given students like Fred and George, I'm sure they, they kind of make his life relatively miserable at points too. True. So he wants to he wants to scare them so that in uh, when they're young so that they won't mess with them later. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That makes me more interested in how um, past caretakers, like interactions with students, would have been if it would be similar to Filch, if they would have taken on that role in a similar fashion. Right. I mean, we don't know if they're all squibs or if Filch is kind of a unique in that if, way. Yeah, or even if they're not squibs, are they still kind of hard on the kids like that? And nasty. Who was the previous caretaker? I feel like we, we, we have that name. Yeah, it's Apollyon Pringle. Yeah. Okay, but we don't know much about him. Yeah, that's. I'm sure. I was thinking that was it, but I was second guessing myself. All right. Well, I mean, Filch has a. He has a pretty tough job. Does he? What does he do? What does he? What is his role when everything can pretty much be magically maintained anyway? He seems to be kind of just a normal cleaner, really, doesn't he? He's he like yeah. um, wipes up mud and all kind of potions and things that go awry and yeah you'd think you'd just hire someone who can magically just get rid of it all yeah i mean because even even haggard seems to have a job where he's you know gamekeeper gamekeeper has its sort of natural you know it has regular routine missions i'm sure but you know it's not one of the most luxurious jobs filch probably i'm not sure if filch is even lower on the scale than that since his his uh, work doesn't even involve magic though i guess haggard's doesn't either yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks for the thanks for that point, Patrick. Yeah. Thanks, and we'll mention at the end of the show how you guys can call in and leave voicemails, but definitely do that because we would love to hear from you. Yes. And uh, our next comment comes. Um, we have a couple of comments talking about McGonagall being so strict. We talked about this last episode with her taking so many house points. Was that um, too much, Caleb? I think so. I was very upset <laughs> as a Gryffindor. <laughs> 
But in our forums, Snape Escape uh, says, The only reason I can think of for McGonagall taking away 50 house points each is that she wants to set the bar high to stop them from doing doing it again. Set a precedent in a way so that the stakes are high in case they decided to go wandering or whatnot in the night again. She's affirming her authority. Or she's just feeling particularly strict and and her sour mood resulted in the big loss of points. So again, exactly like the same idea, the filch kind of scaring them out of misbehaving. This is McGonagall scaring them out of misbehaving in the fear of losing so many points. Yeah. And uh, another comment that sort of takes it a bit further from Cassandra1447 on the forum says, When McGonagall catches Harry, Hermione, and Neville, what if she takes that many points as a way of trying to keep them from wandering about the castle at night again? It seems like an excessive amount to take, plus the detention, but maybe that was the point. She could have wanted to make them very reluctant to venture out after hours again. After all, she knows a dark wizard is after the stone. And night seems the most likely time for someone to be creeping about trying to get the stone to the stone. And if she vaguely suspects it could be Voldemort or a Death Eater, Harry would be a very tempting target if he was wandering around. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean... She- She's definitely looking after Harry and the group because she knows that he's getting involved. And then, I don't think you guys mentioned this in the last episode, but remember the the troll? Mm-hmm. The troll attack? I mean, I know that was months ago, but probably something that, like, dangerous doesn't stumble into the school very often. Yeah, so, still on their mind. Yeah. yeah, so maybe McGonagall was extra precautious. Uh, maybe even even if this is a few months later, because this year has been already kind of kind of dangerous. And maybe she's heard whisperings from... Snape and and Dumbledore, you know. Mm-hmm. So it in that seems way, like I, an excessive yeah. amount of points. Well, I would I definitely do, agree with that, but yeah, <laughs> I do think it's probably a way of like trying to stop them from doing it again more than trying to protect them. I mean, the idea of them not being out of bed when everyone else is asleep is, in general, just trying to protect them. Like it's not just there to to keep them in their rooms and keep them being quiet it's there to you know there's no one there to keep an eye on them because everyone else is asleep um yeah of course so in general they should be sticking to school rules which are there for a reason um but the excessive amount of points is probably there as a deterrent and also there's the matter that we get the that we've just been like introduced to the house point system and if it hadn't if this hadn't happened then you know maybe readers of sequels would just think that the the house points were only major in terms of the Quidditch games, and in classes they like you get a few deductions, but they wouldn't matter that much. Now we've seen that, like, they can really be taken in large amounts, such that it can like change everything. So, we really learned that the house system is very dynamic in this passage. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Jessica, what house are you in? I'm on a Pottermore. A Ravenclaw. And do you feel that's right for you? Yeah. I was curious because, well, I guess we don't have any Slytherins, but. I was thinking, if this happened to you, any of us, like McGonagall taking away that many points, would it deter you from sort of still venturing out and trying to be nosy? I think. I know what my answer is. I think I would still walk around and try to be curious. I'd just try to be a little more cautious than running around laughing in the middle of a hallway because I got a dragon taken away or something. I think it would just. I think. Instead of a deterrent, I think I'd probably just be more sneaky. I'd try to get my ninja skills up before I go out and try to wander the hallways at night. 
Bad for your house, Jessica. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> what about you, Noah? What about As you? As a Hufflepuff, a Hufflepuff. If I got caught. Well, I just wouldn't do it again. <laughs> <clears throat> My curiosity is too high for that. If something, if I'm curious about something, I'm gonna try to go out and figure out what's the best answer for whatever piqued my curiosity hmm that's an interesting what about you caleb i would definitely still go around because i mean not for the same reasons as jessica for like curious to find an answer i mean i would go just because like seems interesting adventurous (laughs) and if mcgonagall took those points from you you'd you'd sneak off and you'd find her (laughs) that's right i would yeah, I'm out of bed. What you gonna do? <laughs> exactly. Sneak ultimately... up behind her, drop something. You know. Ultimately, it just teaches Harry old. not to forget his cloak again. Yeah, like, it that's doesn't true. really teach him not to go out. It just needs to be more careful. I mean, I would probably be... mess up with the cloak again. I'm too like, I I make too many mistakes easily. I would probably lose the cloak again. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if you really don't want points taken from Gryffindor, you might just have to take her out. That might be your first move. Whoa, man. <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> Student, teacher dating, no matter what realm we're talking about, it's not kosher. So. Uh, that's not what I meant by take her out. Oh, you like, oh, you mean like, okay, got you. Okay. So clear, now, now you make me look foolish. So. <laughs> All right. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. All right, so our next comment comes um, regarding the uh, the potions riddle um, to, that Harry and Hermione have to get past. And it comes from our main site, from Ginger Ravenclaw. And the comment says, On the potions puzzle on Pottermore, I had forgotten what the right potions were, and I didn't want to cheat using the book. It took me a good 15 to 20 minutes to figure it out. I later asked my twin sister how she did it, because she hasn't read the books, and I knew she wouldn't try to figure it out on her own. She told me that she picked the two bottles she thought were the prettiest. They just happened to be the right ones. I thought that was pretty <laughs> funny. Also, you need to make sure you get your twin sister to read the Harry Potter books. Because that's important. It is. <laughs> have you guys you guys have gone through the the potions riddle on Pottermore? Well, we talked about this last time, didn't we? Yeah. I feel like yeah. we did. Have you but you weren't here. So Noah, did you get through the riddle okay? I I think I kind of sat with it, and eventually I, I figured it out. It was a while ago. But. Okay. Oh, yeah. You know, hardworking Hufflepuff here. Right, right. I think I just clicked until I got it, probably. All right, and now we're going to move into our special feature discussion from last week. Just the, um, it was the Unspeakables. Unspeakables, we were talking about destiny and fate in the Harry Potter series and how it mixes with the, the centaurs and the way they work. So we have one great comment from the forums from SDA15. In your special segment section about destiny, which I'm still on the fence about, fate versus choices, you guys brought up about the centaurs stepping up and telling the wizarding world about what they know, which got me thinking. Would the wizarding world even take them seriously? We see the way Umbridge views the centaur, near human intelligence, I believe is the phrase used. And we also see McGonagall's views on divination, which they are, and they aren't positive. I can see a few ignorant wizards seeing what the centaurs and what Trelawney does is the same, which they are kind of similar, and then not taking what the centaurs have to say seriously. Well, interesting point. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if you guys brought this up in the last episode, but the fact that centaurs are these these half-breed creatures, they obviously are met with a lot of prejudice, I'm sure, in the, in the wizarding community. They would not agree of being half-breed. They would be you know, uh, an evolution of human humanity rather than 
less than one. Yeah, that I mean that's their <laughs> that's their story, and maybe they are, but they're clearly not like they they don't have a a vote in council in in the Wizengamot. You know what I mean? They don't have a, a fundamental role in society, as far as I'm concerned. They just kind of hang out in the forest. So mm-hmm. I'm sure, like Umbridge, reflects the this larger branch of people who, you know, probably do control a lot of stuff and keep them kind of out of the out of political control, just like house elves and goblins. And but uh, then you've got the um, the fountain of is it fountain of magical brethren? I think in in yeah. the Ministry of Magic that is a centaur, a witch. Uh, a house elf and a wizard is it yeah but but honestly i almost would wonder if the centaurs would if well however much they they know about it they may think that is just some facade to put up to for you know public sentiment for the sake of politics yeah i bet that's what it is and I think this is why, you know, what you're you're hitting on, Noah, reflects, it, it parallels a lot of things in, in real life, how the subjected, um, these groups that are, you know, cast down are usually only see those extremists that sort of push them down as the characterization of, of the other. And so that's why, you know, they may be staying, you know, to themselves so much. Yeah. And I mean, do you remember when uh, Bane got so angry that, friends had uh, Harry on his back yeah I mean I think I think a lot of the reason that he got really angry is because they have been called horses and you know half breeds and there have been a lot they've been ridiculed and it's not right to do that because then you're putting the human above you and yeah that's probably very you know hurtful to the community mm-hmm. whereas friends doesn't even see like any of that he just knows that I have to I kept save this boy because I'm in this because I'm gonna play a part in this destiny so speaking of that, back to the special feature and the choices versus the destiny argument, I thought that was really interesting, and I know it kind of parallels what we were talking about with Dumbledore in the episode before. Um, didn't we say that Friends is kind of different from the other centaurs in that he like he knows that a certain fate is outlined in the stars, but that on occasion you have to be the change, you have to like go in and and help things along. He seems to be like a like heretic almost of their culture. Yeah, I mean. He definitely stands stands apart from the traditional, you know, not wanting to interfere. And he definitely, you know, maybe he sees it as there's still an influence to be had without shaking things up too much to where you're, you know, completely destroying quote, what the stars show. And yeah. if you're not doing anything, if you're just watching the stars, then you're not really living anyway. You're just watching yeah. and observing other people. So I think Ferenz, by by taking a role, whether it's messing with you know what what Mars is saying or not um it's just kind of actually living more and it's it eventually gets him a job whether he likes it or not um and I think it's just yeah he's out there in the world and he's he's being a centaur for good whereas the others are kind of just hiding away and not really being centaurs at all not really counting I mean yeah. it really it really plays into the uh, the determinism free will debate if you believe in determinism, you believe that everything is kind of set and ordered and there's nothing you can do to change it because every event is caused by another event and, you know, we as people can't actually influence much change. We can only be part of this sequence of events. So that's to me what a lot of these centaurs have kind of just accepted. But friends seems to be this guy. But they're not even really accepting it because if you were accepting it, then you would just do it and just assume that it's been preordained. Right. They're just taking themselves out of both theories. 
Ooh, that's interesting. Because they're not even taking part. What do you think, Jessica? Um, I didn't get a chance to listen to this part of the podcast last week. But um, what did you guys exactly say about the whole, um, what the centaurs thought on the prophecy, or like what they were trying to say was going on when they kept saying Mars is bright? Um, I did, think we were we saying that? that it was Mars is the god of war. Yeah. So we were saying that kind of Mars is bright, so war is coming in some in some form, um, and that they shouldn't interfere with Harry's life because he's so obviously a figure of kind of um, a problematic figure, I guess, in terms of Voldemort coming back and the the mm. war that's already happened and the war that's yet to come. Okay. Um. Hold on a second. Let me go find my book real quick. Because I think I took a Harry Potter class maybe a couple semesters ago. And I was going to write a paper on the centaurs. And I think I wrote some notes in there. What I got written down so far was um, all the symbolism that I seem to have found. Well, at least I thought I found in the whole situation. Because I think um, I sent in the recording talking about how I wanted to hear about you guys' thoughts. And I totally didn't even get a chance to listen to it yet. But um, <laughs> um, when I tried to write the paper, I tried to look up what the astrological part of what Mars meant in astrology. And um, sure. it wasn't just war. I guess Mars means like passion, um, death, rebirth, and uh, obviously war. But also masculinity and um, I think there was one more thing, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. But um, I think what Firens was trying to say to Bane wasn't um, that he was completely wrong, but that he was reading the stars in the wrong way. Like, um, maybe everybody thought, like, the war was coming, or maybe they were trying to predict that Harry was supposed to die that night in the forest. Like, Quirrell was supposed to catch him. But Firens came in and he knocked the quirrell away, and that's when he took Harry and whisked him off. Um, yeah. if, if you look at Firens' description, I think they have him with long blonde hair, blue eyes, and um, a light brown kind of body, like a palmer- palmino body or something like that. Like, it could be a symbolism that um, not only... Um, did he just block off Harry from dying? But you can also kind of see him as an angel trying to change the situation that was yeah. going Ooh. on. We didn't talk about that at all last week, about the fact that he is a, a blonde, a, a light-figured centaur, whereas Bane is very dark. That's definitely yes. an interesting point. Dark and aggressive. And then, yeah. like, you could also see him as a split in um, generation-wise, too. Like, it's kind of a foreshadowing, because, like, Firens is talking about how he's willing to work with the wizards to, you know, stop the oncoming war. But, um, Bane is talking about how he doesn't want to do that. It's like a big generation split, but also, like, a foreshadowing into the future. The only way they're going to win the war is if they all kind of work together. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. (laughs) Thanks for all that symbolism, Jessica. You're welcome. Definitely. That was excellent. All right, so moving right along to Rosie's post question of the week last week. Thank you for taking that on. That's okay. I hope I did a good job for you. (laughs) You did. You did. So, yeah, our question last week was that if Harry had listened to his teachers and trusted their skills in setting up the task to prevent the theft of the stone, would Voldemort have ever been able to capture it? 
was Voldemort destined to succeed or was Harry destined to intervene? Um, or was it all just Dumbledore's influence um, and him interfering? So unlike the centaurs that inspired Harry to act and face Voldemort in chapter 17. So these comments are all from our main site, all from our post question um, discussion thread in the comments. And our first one comes from Loomis Knight 3 and it says, I almost think it was just coincidental that Harry got it. He didn't really have the intention of going behind, beyond the trapdoor to get the stone. He also wanted to stop anyone else from getting it. So if there is anything about this moment that seems fated, I think it's that Harry's that Harry met Voldemort and got started on his journey to understanding their connection, and not that he managed to steal the stone right from under Voldemort's nose, or perhaps I should say from under his chin, seeing as he has no nose. <laughs> Good comment. Well, I mean, there's a... We're going to talk about it at the end of the chapter, but it seems as if Dumbledore planned for a lot of this to go down, actually, in answer to uh, two episodes ago, the post-question of the week. I think... Uh, I don't think Vold Harry... Sorry, my bad. I don't think Voldemort could have gotten the stone without Harry because it seemed that the mirror was specifically enchanted to only... You can only acquire the stone if you only meant to find it. So, doesn't that mean that Voldemort would have had no chance anyway? I've always wondered, though, how... Like, it's not Voldemort looking in the mirror, it's Quirrell, and Quirrell doesn't want to use it himself. He wants to use it for Voldemort. So is that not really answering that specific... Hmm. need anyway? Well, I think since Voldemort is attached to the back of Quirrell's head, I think that probably influenced it a little bit. They count as one person, perhaps? Yeah. Well, I think Quirrell, by using the stone, I think it's kind of, we can say that he by giving it to Voldemort, he was going to aid in the, in the, in the using it for gold and for life. Maybe we shouldn't talk about this now, though, because that's all going to come up in, yeah, in yeah, our yeah. next chapter discussion. So oh, let's geez. move on. Dangerous. Um, <laughs> but yes, uh, going back to that comment, I think, yeah, you can definitely see a fated moment of Harry starting his journey throughout the entire seven books. It's it's kind of a mini version of his ultimate battle. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. Um, the next comment is from Lily Luna 7 and it says, There was absolutely no way at all Voldemort could have gotten the stone, not without the mirror of Erised guarding it. Sorry, not with the mirror of Erised guarding it. I believe that Dumbledore realised this and used it as an opportunity to set Harry up against Voldemort. However, I wonder if destiny can be thought of as the most probable outcome of events based on the choices people are likely to make. This would explain why the predictions of the centaurs are, are usually accurate. Um, destiny is simply what will probably happen and the centaurs are also able to read the planets and get a sense of that. I think that's just a matter of definitions. I think destiny in, in its... Uh in its defined term is a is kind of like determinism. It is a, a set thing that's going to happen. So no, I disagree with that comment. Yeah, I mean, I think it more what would maybe be more appropriate is how broad or narrow your you know view on what is fated uh, would be. You know, is it a specific action or is it you know the general outcome and then sort of the events in between could could be could be different or left up to whoever or whatever but yeah i agree with no i think you know um destiny at its core is you know what will absolutely happen just the scope may be a little different yeah sure okay thank you our next comment is marauder river 14231 
these numbers are getting longer. <laughs> um, the comment says, I think this can be paralleled to, to Dumbledore being the only person that Voldemort ever feared. With the other teachers and their tasks to protect the stone, it doesn't matter to Voldemort. Um, he'll take on the other teachers all day, but Dumbledore's task was designed to keep something, someone like Voldemort out. And I like to have faith that the magic would be powerful enough to keep Voldemort from retrieving the stone from the mirror. So it's saying that Dumbledore's task is specifically designed to stop Voldemort, whereas all of the other teachers were designed to stop general wizards. Well, yeah, I, th I think each task had a certain, uh, like, kind of attribute that it was looking for, like almost like a sorting test in a way. You have to prove your bravery, your your intelligence, your cleverness, and your your speed and skills. So each one could probably be narrowed down to, uh, you know, the, the chess with strategy. So Dumbledore's, I, I don't, I mean, that task probably kind of tells us a little about who Dumbledore is himself. I mean, it's all about going against your desire, doing, um, I don't know, could we read something about for the greater good in that, in that whole task of the mirror? Yeah, I think so. You've got all of these tasks, like you were saying, that kind of test skills, but I think Dumbledore's really tests morality um, and tests Interesting who choices. you are as a person. Yes. And it, it really go, it cuts, you, cuts you really deeply because it's your, you know, your deepest desire. And as we know, Dumbledore has had to you know, face his deepest desires and, and wants throughout his entire life. Alright, so thank you Marauder River. And our final comment is from, I think it's meant to be Yule, E-U-L-E, -E, I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. And it says, if Harry had listened to his teachers, he wouldn't be Harry. And I think that's just completely true. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good comment to uh, finish up all of those responses from the question of the week. Thank you guys for sending them in. And we're going to transition into... Discussing our final chapter of Philosopher's Stone. So I'll kick it over to Noah. Yep, The Man with Two Faces. Wow, we almost did it, guys. That's one book down of heavy analysis. It's gone so quickly. Yeah. Do you want to think about the chapter title real quick? What did you first think when you saw that, The Man with Two Faces? I mean, you probably saw the chapter art, at least if you have the U.S. edition, and it's uh, it, you can tell it's Quirrell, but... That's quite frightening, isn't it? Honestly, I think the first time I read the book, I paid hardly any attention to it, given the way the previous chapter ends. I was so anxious to keep reading to figure out what happened. Well, what do we think of it now, separate from what, we, what we'll know? Two faces are kind of like, you know, good and evil. Um, Two faces also is like betrayal, or um, I guess like... A kind of a hidden identity hidden identity so all of that really works well with Quirrell mm -hmm. yeah it's got so many different meanings that and they all work <laughs> okay so the man with two faces Harry enters the fire and we find Professor Quirrell and he's ready to destroy Harry and to get the stone for Voldemort because we learn that he's actually been behind this the whole time I know I had no idea nope um Okay, so on page 291, we, we have Quirrell nervously looking at the, at the mirror of Arised, and we know that, um, 
we know that this is the last task, and we, we kind of know intuitively that Dumbledore has done this, also because Quirrell says that, is this one of Dumbledore's tricks? So, what I wanted to pose to you guys is, is, I mean, think about the fact that Harry seems to know that if he looks in the mirror, he will see the stone. Let me, let me bring up the exact quote. This is what Harry says in his head. What I want more than anything else in the world at this moment, he thought, is to find the stone before Quirrell does. So if I look in the mirror, I should see myself finding it, which means I'll see where it's hidden. But I... Alright, so that's the end of quote. So I was just wondering, I thought the... Didn't Dumbledore tell us that the mirror can't really tell us anything of use? So how did Harry know that he would be able to find it? And do we think the stone was, like, stored in the mirror? Like, where is the stone before it gets to Harry? There are lots of different questions we can talk about that, but... For now, let's let me give you those. Um, on on Dumbledore saying that it can't show us anything of use, I think that it does tell us something valuable, but it depends on what your your deepest desire is. I mean, for most people, their deepest desire isn't anything particularly useful. It's just something kind of purely personal and purely kind of. Um, all about them and all very kind of introspective um but for this this is kind of harry's hero complex coming into play it's it's harry his greatest desire is nothing selfish it's something that is truly valuable and truly useful um and therefore the the warning that dumbledore gave earlier doesn't really apply right and he's able to see that he has it or it, it kind of drops in his pocket so if he if he hadn't been pure-hearted in that moment not been such like so determined to do this maybe it was the Gryffindor in him he wouldn't have been able to tell where the stone was he would have he yeah. would have probably just seen uh, himself with his parents again now do we think that the mirror contained the stone do you think it like where was the stone previous to him looking we've got a great comment from the forums that actually um, tackled that question. Oh, cool. Um, Caleb, do you want to read it? Sure. So the comment comes from Padfoot711 on the forums, uh, and it says, maybe the stone goes from being vanished to being in the pocket of the person who only wants to find it. If we go into the scientific aspect of magic, like with Desk Pig, my God, <laughs> we, know, we know that vanished objects go into non-being. That is to say, everywhere from Professor McGonagall. Based on this, if the stone was everywhere, in other words, the particles of it are dissolved into the air, it could just gather into Harry's pocket from thin air. So yeah, that theory is basically that the the stone doesn't just kind of magically appear. It Well, it does just mag magically appear. It's not stored inside the mirror. It's stored everywhere in that room, and it kind of magnetically pulls itself back together and into Harry's pocket from the air, which I think is quite a nice idea. Yeah, I like that. You you guys don't think it was actually stored in the mirror? No. Mm, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I know for sure. This is an interesting alternative idea, but hmm, I'm not sure still. Now, how, how here's another question. That That is interesting. Thank you, Padfoot. Um, do we think that this, how powerful was the enchantment Dumbledore used and how specific? Because we know he altered the mirror in some way so that it could do this. But could Harry have, say, looked in the mirror later and looked where the Horcruxes were located if he wanted to? When when Harry's trying to find the Horcruxes, he's a kind of older and more complicated being, so he can't 
focus his deepest desire quite as much as he does when he's 11. When he's 11, he's really just focusing on the fact that he's got this one very simple task and it's to find the stone and that's his deepest desire. But when he's older, his deepest desire is to defeat Voldemort and to, to kind of save the world. So he can't focus in on individual Horcruxes and their placement. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. But what if, hypothetically, his deepest desire was to find the Horcruxes? Then he would see himself with all seven Horcruxes. He wouldn't see. It wouldn't be like he couldn't see where they're located. If his desire was to see where they are located, I don't know. What What do you guys think? Yeah, because uh, well, ultimately, his I guess is it his desire to find them or is it to destroy them? Because those are you know two different things. So how about his desire to to find them to see where they're located? To then yeah, I mean I don't think it works that way. It's that's too specific. And, and yeah. Dumbledore used a spell specifically to yeah. All right. Yeah. Well. If anybody in the forums wants to continue this, you know, this thread of conversation, we'd be interested in thinking about that. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Okay, and one more thing about that scene in the mirror, and this was kind of coolly done in the movie, but it's also in the book. Harry sees himself winking at himself and putting the stone in his pocket. Who was this winking Harry? Uh-huh. And where does yeah. he live? <laughs> yeah, I mean that 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 is that's tricky. See, when I read that when I was younger, I always thought about that whole parallel universe thing that people always play on when they do it in kid shows. Like, the others, the magic beyond the other side of the mirror or something like that. Sure. Or maybe it's, um, even though it's Harry's figure, you know, in the mirror, maybe in some ways it's Dumbledore winking. Ooh. That's a good idea. What's Dumbledore doing in Harry's body <laughs> <Image form. laughs> um yeah but uh, it, it, it is kind of cool i was wondering maybe maybe it's the personality of the mirror or the Just, personality of dumbledore's spell on it that it, yeah yeah which all of it i would say is a manifestation of dumbledore is manifestation uh, yeah i love that okay yeah that's pretty cool <laughs> Then again, you know, Steve Vanderark would tell us that this is just the way magic works and we can't quite read so much into it, but, you know. Okay, so we've covered, we've covered quite a bit. And then, so, so Quirrell's doing a lot of talking through this whole scene. Harry is bound with ropes, and he's trying to delay Quirrell as best he can, but then Quirrell says, You boy, look in the mirror! Because, you know, Voldemort has weakly kind of, Yes, yes, make him look in the mirror, kind of brought Harry over. So he sees his image, he finds the stone in his pocket, and then Voldemort wants a face-to-face talk with Harry. Quirrell unravels his turban, and we are faced with a grotesque image. It's a pale white face, and with two slits nostrils for the nose, like a snake, and we get our first look at, at Voldemort in the in the series. And I think we also get our first look at a Horcrux, is Quirrell a Horcrux, in a way? And what does that mean? I don't know. Like, I'd never actually thought about Quirrell being a Horcrux. I mean, if it was, then wouldn't Voldemort have split, it, split his soul more than, like, was counted later in the series? Well, if you think about it, the piece of soul that he does, that does infest Quirrell, is, a, is already a piece of soul. So, oh, you that's know, just true. By, by virtue of going to a body and giving it, you know... And, and kind of using it, being a parasite, that is kind of like a horcrux. There's actually a great, great quote from Pottermore 
Let me read that. It's on Quirrell's backstory. Quirrell is, in effect, turned into a temporary Horcrux by Voldemort. He is greatly depleted by the physical strain of fighting the far stronger evil soul inside him. Quirrell's body manifests, burns, and blisters during his fight with Harry due to the protective power Harry's mother left in his skin when she died for him. When the body Voldemort and Quirrell are sharing is horribly burned by contact with Harry, the former flees just in time to save himself, leaving the damaged and enfeebled Quirrell to collapse and die. So guess what, guys? Harry almost killed Voldemort just there if Voldemort had stayed in, in Quirrell's body, you know, long enough for... Because if you remember Horcruxes, they can only live as long as their vessel is alive. So if, if uh, I believe if Voldemort had stayed in there for some reason, maybe he was paralyzed while Quirrell died, I believe he would have died. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, so but that's even the Horcruxes? I don't Voldemort in that stage would have escaped. Well, well, he did. He did. He's flee. only a temporary Horcrux, like. <laughs> well, temporary. I think. I in the, think in that, that he's only... the 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 piece of Voldemort's soul in Quirrell's body is like the remainder. If you think about like shavings of a pencil, all of the the actual Horcruxes are little bits of soul that are like permanently attached to an object. What is left is the remainder, which is again only small. Um, and therefore is able to kind of latch on to Quirrell, but it's not a permanent Horcrux. It's not like it has to survive. It has to be attached um, to survive. Um, Voldemort is able to leave um, on his own kind of free will and um, kind yeah. of exist as that part of soul. Because because it seems like Voldemort's head, in a way, is here. I would say, you yeah. know what I mean? Like his main, his mommy soul. The mommy soul is here, the, the main one. Yeah. That's kind of a, a terrible term for it, but... Um, yeah, and that sort of gives him the ability to kind of leave and enter at will, I think, whereas the other pieces of soul can't do that. That's why they can... Otherwise, if Voldemort... If the soul could just flee all the time, then you'd have seven different spiritual souls being able to kind of act in, you know, differently. But it seems yeah. like he himself can become a Horcrux by taking his piece of soul and going in. So that's very interesting. Now, as I was reading it and thinking about that, I thought of the fact that when he enters Quirrell, he, he becomes a face in uh, in the back of Quirrell's head. Do you think that's because his spirit mm -hmm. is... It has like a physical... The physical match to that spirit is a face or a, or a head. And maybe the other pieces of soul are like legs and arms <laughs> and like... They, they have other kind of physical um, equivalents. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you mean like the soul is actually just like a form of a ghost and it's he like amputated each piece of the body and threw it into like a horcrux? Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, that's I can see that. That's interesting if you think about um, kind of the manifestations of the different horcruxes. But that's the discussion to have in kind of, I don't know, hundreds of podcasts time when we get to the right book, but um, of Horcruxes, like, yeah. Or, like in the next book we see the Horcrux as a, which I guess would be kind of a bigger Horcrux than the others because it's an earliest one um, and it's Voldemort as Tom Riddle, so it's a whole personality of a younger form um, yeah, but whereas that, yeah, that's true. other things are like um, the the locket is particularly um it kind of whispers at your insecurities. Um, so it's that kind of trickster part of Voldemort. It's that bit that will kind of see your your weaknesses and really kind of target those. 
it, it's possible that each soul is not only maybe maybe it's a fragment of a body or it's maybe a fragment of his personality. We might yeah. find that each Horcrux is Horcrux is like a different personality. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, good. That is really cool. <laughs> yeah, so just bringing it back, I saw like why did his face look like that on Quirrell? Because I believe the line is, you know, Voldemort. He says, "I can only take form when I enter a body." So the reason it takes that form that it does that this pale face with the with the slits for nose is because a part of Voldemort's DNA is carried over somehow with his soul that on, that is activated when he enters like a body so that mm. face would appear in its exact in that exact replica on anything on any human thing it it uh it like fused with or at least that's my theory yeah that makes sense wow that would be extremely creepy, creepy then if he like took over a rat or something and like the rat's face morphed into his yeah. face <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> or a filler for like a horse and it was just like the horse butt <laughs> one of the cheeks <laughs> <laughs> like the horse's eyes just turn into like red slit looking thing oh my god that's creepy yeah, I mean you could put it anyway you just put Voldeface in it <laughs> but <laughs> Voldeface and there it is <laughs> oh I got I got you oh man so and, I you can know, see I'm the t-shirts already. There. Thinking about living Horcruxes, we know that Quirrell drinks unicorn blood for him. Now, how does ingestion work between a soul and and a you know its carrier? How does excretion work? <laughs> Go, Caleb. This is yours. No. Uh, <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, hmm. Well, I'm not going to talk about excretion, but you know, ingestion that. I don't know. I guess it's, it's as a different. science man. As a science man, I'm asking you the biological pers- like perspective. How would a parasite, you know? I think it's different because it's magic. I mean, I think he's not necessarily needing the like the nutri- the nutritional gain of it. He's needing the the power of the unicorn blood. So, I mean, yeah. as far as like Quirrell, I would say he's probably digesting and so forth, at least relatively normally. But, um, I mean, Voldemort is only getting the power of it that he needs. Well, we, we can assume that Quirrell takes in the blood. We know he's drinking it. And then that goes into his body and, yeah. and, you know, gives the effect. And then Voldemort takes from Quirrell's body, I would assume, that effect. Which, in very, very broad sense, is, you know, just the way parasites work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's kind of interesting. Living Horcrux. Horcruxes are very interesting because you have these two souls sharing a body. Um, I guess because Quirrell has the the head, as it were, of Voldemort. You know, he's he's there all the time. But we know that Harry has no idea, even though that there is a there's a piece of soul inside him too. So, question here: um, If Voldemort is making Quirrell drink the blood, does is Quirrell the only one that's cursed, or does like Voldemort take on that too? That's an interesting question. I would say it's only well because we know it's Quirrell that's actually drinking it. I think it's only Quirrell that gets cursed. All right. But then Voldemort takes it eventually to to strengthen him. So isn't it? Doesn't yeah, it still but end? I think it's still like he's getting that you know as being part of Quirrell. I think that Quirrell you know gets the punishment for it solely. So like Quirrell's wow. like the filter between like the power and the curse of the um, unicorn blood for Voldemort. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. All right, I think like he lucked out. <laughs> I think that if if Quirrell had been maybe stronger, or if Voldemort had kept swapping between people's bodies, they would never have needed the unicorn blood. 
Um, as the the Pottermore quote said, um, Quirrell is greatly depleted by the physical strain of fighting the far stronger evil soul inside of him. Um, so it's it's Quirrell that needs the blood to to be stronger and to still support Voldemort. But Voldemort himself does not need the blood because he's already living a half life. He's already just surviving in some form. Well, I, I know that's true, but are you sure, sure, Rosie? Because I feel like, you know, Quirrell wasn't necessarily near death, but it seems that Voldemort was was using it to feed him to strengthen him. Um, you think it was to strengthen Quirrell's body? Yeah, because essentially that's what he's using as as him. He's as him got oh, the kind yeah. of thoughts, but he's not actually he doesn't actually have physical form. So if he wants strength, it needs to be Quirrell's strength. All right, I I understand. That makes sense. You know, you know, Star Kid really explored it in their uh, their theatrical piece what it's like <laughs> to live with Voldemort on your head. Definitely. But uh, you know that really happened. I mean, Quirrell had to go to the bathroom. Voldemort <laughs> sat there. And he... Oh my god! <laughs> that happened, guys. So I'm anyway. sure he left the turban on at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Don't watch my master. <laughs> Whoa. So. Okay, we're gonna move on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then, so then, so then, Quirrell, Voldemort has his peace with Harry. Harry says, "Never, I'll never join you. My parents were brave." And then Quirrell is burned alive. Kind of. Uh, Harry latches onto Quirrell because he realizes that he has a form of protection, which we know to be Lily's uh, love. And you know, even though Quirrell knows that he's he's gonna he's died doing this, or he's like in da- in danger, he keeps going at it. Um, why he goes for to strangle Harry first instead of using magic, I'm not sure. But um, at a certain point, th- does the wand fly out of his hand? Is that why he stops using magic to kill him, or he's trying to get the stone right? Hmm. Yeah. I I don't. I have to look because I can't honestly remember. I can't honestly remember the the wand leaving his hand. For for whatever reason, he. Uh... Oh, this is bad. I have to I have to remember why does the why does the spell not work? He's about to use his curse, and then I think Harry like attacks him. Am I right? I'm on the page. I'm scanning. I think I don't think he ever tried to use magic. He was. Voldemort shouts, "Seize him!" Because Harry's about to run away. No, there's a line that um, Quirrell raised his wand to use a deadly curse, but then Harry, like out of instinct, attacked him. Okay, here it is. Um, oh, yeah, then, then kill him full and be done. Screech Voldemort. Quirrell raised his hand to perform a deadly curse, but Harry, by instinct, reached up and grabbed Quirrell's face, and then he screams. So yeah. yeah. Now would that would that spell have killed Harry? I guess not, right? Oh wait. Mm, uh, I don't know. Let's let's think about this. We know that it doesn't kill him after the blood is taken because the love is still on. Um, love is still on Earth. That's why he's not killed because Voldemort has the blood in him. But potentially, it's like it would have been enacting the. The King's Cross and the um, forest scene from Deathly Hallows, but no, seven but it, books earlier. No, but it wouldn't, Rosie, because that the only reason so, that like, happened was because uh, Voldemort had taken Harry's blood and the love into his body, and that was alive on Earth, and it tethered him to life. But since Voldemort hadn't taken his blood yet, 
um, I don't think he would have been able to... It, the King's Cross sequence wouldn't have initiated. I think he might have died there. I always thought it was just kind of physical touch. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Alright, so anybody in the forums, if you'd like to let us know about that, that's still a bit of a mystery, but for whatever reason... No, no, Harry, out of instinct, grabs Quirrell's face and burns him, and, uh, you know... His only chance was to keep hold of Quirrell, keep him in enough pain to stop him doing a curse. That's right. the line. And he was right, and it saved his life, and then he hears voices in his head, Harry, Harry, and it's actually, we now know, Dumbledore coming down, and actually takes, uh, takes the hand off Harry, takes Quirrell's hand off, and we just have Harry, like, going into unconsciousness. So... Here's my thought. There's a big time jump right to Harry now in the in Madam in the hospital wing. So yeah. what transpired between Voldemort and Dumbledore in those moments while Quirrell is dying? Do we think anything? I think maybe Voldemort just kind of flew away. Like he probably knew that Dumbledore was coming, so he probably just like I don't know how a soul would go, but like just disappeared and hid away from Dumbledore. And then how did all right? That's that's possible. I mean, I I know in the movie he just kind of he kind of floats away. But I'm just saying there's a there's a chance here that there was some kind of exchange between the two. Uh, old nemesis, nemesis. I mean, if you take it in that kind of possibility, maybe Dumbledore was trying to talk some sense into Voldemort, or maybe he was trying to taunt him. <laughs> I can see. That. I think Quirrell's Quirrell's close enough to death at this point that there isn't enough time. I think Voldemort has to leave him straight away, and then when he does, he loses all physical form, so he physically can't talk to anyone. This is true. So then, guys, uh, I just want to hear your opinion. Uh, we're going to get a bit more into the chapter. Harry wakes up to Sweets and to Dumbledore kind of calmly telling him how it all went. But do you feel like there was a bit of odd... Um, nobody seemed to care that Quirrell had died? Or that... I'm. Like, I guess they didn't know everything about the story, but even the teachers didn't really seem concerned. I mean, I imagine Dumbledore taking this kind of burned, t like, body back, because we know Quirrell died from this. Um, you know, I assume burying it and hiding it away, because we can't have everyone knowing that Voldemort is back. So, did, did you find that, you know, Quirrell was kind of gotten rid of in a, in a weird way, or was this just kind of commonplace? I mean, we don't really get much of a reaction for any of the teachers after, you know, Harry comes back because it's kind of like Dumbledore's there, the trio are there, and then it's the closing feast, so. Well, like, maybe Dumbledore tried to pass it off like um, Quirrell was the bad guy because, like, the fires, um, you had the logic thing about the fires and he could probably just said, like, oh, Quirrell got stuck and tried to get out and burned and died and everybody just kind of passed it off as, oh, he's a traitor. Well, that's the thing. Do they do they know he's dead necessarily, or do they think he's maybe been sent to Azkaban? Because everyone knows that Quirrell was behind it and that Harry saved the day. But I think they I think they out? know I think they know he's dead. I don't know if they know the finer details of how it all happened. You know that you know he got burned alive because Harry grabbed his face. But you know, I, I think I, a large I, amount of the the kind of the lack of response that's in the book is because you know this is a book that's designed for you know, six, seven, eight-year-olds. It's a children's book that, you know, if we really went into the kind of horrific detail about um, everyone's reactions to this guy dying, then it would be kind of too horrific for us to celebrate Harry's victory. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it might have been. I mean, she could have she could have taken it a much darker way. You yeah. Know? And maybe maybe seventh years are kind of discussing. They know the finer details of the story, and they discuss it, and they're like, "Damn, that kid. We have to. <laughs> someone has to watch that kid. He burns people." <laughs> but. <laughs> So, Harry wakes up in the hospital wing, and uh, Dumbledore's right there with uh, Bertie Bott's Every Flavor Beans and basically tells Harry, I will answer any of your questions, my dear boy. You've gone through so much turmoil. And Harry just calmly asks, well, why did Voldemort try to kill me when I was a baby? Dumbledore says, alas, Harry, I can't tell you that. Sorry. You're just going to have to wait five books. (laughs) Um, But I can tell you that to the well-organized mind death is but the next great adventure and and Harry uh, you know Harry takes takes that to heart but uh, what do we think about this line here given so so early in the series just the line about like his remarks on death yeah oh should we, should we finish the quote yeah I mean that's what I was because he sort of continues talking about death in the context of of the stone and he he remarks on how um as much money in life as you could want would be given to you by the stone these are the two things most human beings would choose above all the trouble is humans do have a knack for choosing precisely those things that are worse for them which actually thinking about it now is sort of interesting because he can sort of speak from personal experience you know maybe not not necessarily about money but you know trying to do too much with life his own quest to try to get the deathly hallows Right. And also in, in terms of uh, Quirrell, almost kind of, uh, almost like an, an obituary to him in, uh, as a, maybe, as a man who wanted power in life yeah. and, and money and, you know, through greed. And he just, he got it in the end. And, and, also, and also Voldemort. But yeah, from Dumbledore as well. And we know, the, you know, the series is all about death and... Joe's mother actually passed away while this book was being written. Um, yeah. But it does seem like an interesting way to finish the finish this first book about death, and we know we know how young this audience is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's at a very poignant time, and it sort of sets up, as you mentioned, that whole theme that persists through the rest of the books. Yeah. Quite right, Caleb. So Dumbledore has a, a heart-to-heart with Harry, and you know Dumbledore explains for the first time that it was Lily, Lily's love that actually protected him from Quirrell and Voldemort, and we now know that that love actually comes out as a protective layer or some something substantial that protects Harry. I'd really love to go into detail about like what this actually is. Uh, you know, it's going to come up time and time again, but. It, guys, any idea, ideas on what kind of spell this is? Does Harry have a force field, or is it something in his blood? I mean, we the line from Dumbledore is that uh, Quirrell literally couldn't touch something that was so good and pure. So bringing up that unicorn again, um, is is Harry uh, is Harry this pure, or is it this love from Lily that is making him so pure? I think it might be the love from Lily. I mean, because Harry is, I mean, he's a child at the time, so you can kind of make um. A connection between you know childhood and unicorns but I 
really always thought it was just Lily's love in his blood that kind of put a protective layer onto him so like something so evil couldn't touch him right it was certainly the love but it seems like it seems like having been loved Harry then becomes good and that's really interesting when you think about Voldemort he who wasn't really loved by his mother I was certainly loved by his mother when he was born but then she was gone and it didn't really impart on him and he was also born from a loveless union so you know very beginning in the series we have love is this this good very good thing and if you to live without it is to be you know is to be unhuman is to be you know to be evil as a matter of fact mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's that's very interesting and we know that Harry will eventually continue this love he takes it from Lily and he uses the spell to eventually protect everyone in Hogwarts but it's interesting how that equates to good and goodness and purity definitely I'd have to agree <laughs> oh thank you well <laughs> Harry leaves Harry leaves the hospital wing for the for the end of year feast and Slytherin wins the house cup and then they all go back to uh, then Harry goes back to the Dudleys the Dursleys that was a quick jump there I mean (laughs) I mean there's there's some important stuff there with the with the with the trio and Neville getting the house points oh right 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 the house points never mind actually (laughs) Gryffindor Gryffindor won the house cup now I reading this again I felt a little I tend to do this but I felt bad for the Slytherins I mean, I, they were going I, in. They they knew they had won. Please, they had won plenty of times before. I'm over it. They, no. Sure, no. but yeah, but 150 no. points. They got 100. They got too many docked in the first place for McGonagall. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Dumbledore probably had to give her a you know a talking to after that. I'm sure. Plus, you, you know, know, if you've just defeated the darkest wizard of all time, you're gonna want more than 50 points. Yeah. Alright, they deserve it. And Neville's ten points <laughs> at the end were classic. I, I appreciate it's fine. <laughs> yeah. That reading it again, it that line that he uh that he gives for explaining Neville's points just it resonates a lot. I, I love it a lot. I love that line. It's good to be brave to your to your enemies, but to be brave in the face of your friends. Man. That's what he said. Um Real talk. Yeah. So it, these these last chapters kind of went very quickly, they and did. suddenly we find Harry has taken the train back to King's Cross. He says goodbye to the Weasleys. The Dursleys turn up, and then the the book ends, the chapter ends with a line about how Harry is getting ready to threaten Dudley because the Dursleys don't know he can use magic. Now, it. that is that's the ending of the book. What do you, I've never thought about it, but what do you guys think of that as an ending to the to that book? The fact that he's gonna. It's kind of like it's very clever because we know where it's going, right? Yeah. No, I mean, it... I... go ahead. Go on. No, I. I just say I, I really liked it because I think it's it's you know it's the first book in the series. It's it's a lighthearted, you know, comical, amusing ending, and, and it leaves on a good note. Yeah, it's very light. Yeah. Certainly. Not only that, it just seems like a sense of like um, what is it? Vindication for Harry since at the beginning of the books we meet the Dursleys and see how they treat Harry now he has like a weapon to kind of fight back yeah that's exactly what I was going to say I was going to say that it really shows how Harry has changed since the very beginning he he now has that kind of 
personality and power to stand up to the Dursleys in some way and have fun with it. He's still the, the young boy, but now he's the young boy with magic. I mean, probably contributing to Dudley's later, you know, mental damage, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> they work it know. out in the end. Oh, yes, they do. They do that, you know. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of our, you know, chapter discussion of the entirety of book one in the Harry Potter series. Woohoo! Yeah! Woo! <laughs> well done, everybody. And Kat, wherever you are listening, you did great. <laughs> so. I hope you guys will all join us for book two. So now that we've read through the entire book and we've really kind of seen all the nitty gritty details about all of the different chapters, let's try and think about some overarching theories that we might have going into Chamber of Secrets. Um, So to start with, you know, we've seen that, yeah, maybe Snape wasn't the one helping Voldemort and he wasn't the one trying to get the stone. But, you know, there is definitely something evil about Snape, isn't there? It's not just Harry's imagination. I mean, we get that last line at the end, right? That one one look confirms that Snape still hates Harry. Yeah, so, I mean, evil in the sense that, you know, you know, going to the, as you get ready to read the next book, there's going to be some sort of animosity that makes Harry's life a living hell at Hogwarts to, to continue. But, you know, evil, well, you know, that that is that remains to be seen, I think. I think we should have realized that, you know, when the whole book six of Snape killing Dumbledore came out I think we should have realized looking at this book that Snape again is actually for the good you know because these books these books do tend to kind of circle around each other and you know all the patterns and stuff you're going to have the first book parallel the last book there was something really fun about being part of the fandom before we had that before Half-Blood Prince came out when everyone was like I don't know, is Snape good? Is Snape evil? What's the truth about Snape? What is his like story with James and Lily? And yeah. There was always that big question mark that we really wanted answered. Um, and I think Joe managed to answer it in such a beautiful way. Yeah, it was the lingering question, I think, until we figured it out. And even then, you know, well, obviously when we get to Half-Blood Prince, even then when that event happens, you still sort of don't even know until the very end of the last book. Definitely. And having that set up from this such an early kind of moment, like the first chapter, you've got that question about Snape. Well, not first, but the the first time we see him in Hogwarts, you get that kind of, he doesn't like me, why? Is it because of something? Um, is it kind of, is he good or is he evil? That whole question is there throughout the entire book and it lasts right up until that one kind of defining moment where which, you know, ultimately results in Harry naming his child after him. Which was crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I think there's something also about the fact that this is written all through Harry's perspective. The fact that we always have Snape's glare looking at Harry, it means that he's also kind of looking at us, the readers. Mm. He's this, like, he's always from the, the tall table up in the corner. Like, he's, he's, he's got some knowledge, some info, and he's, for some reason, he hates us, and we know it's going to it's all going to tumble into, into more story and we're going to find out more about it in later books. Definitely. And it was a brilliant way of doing that in the movies as well, the fact that Alan Rickman knew the truth and could actually kind of portray that um, throughout his kind of role as Snape. That's he right. always knew more than everyone else in the cast um, and you can really kind of see that in his in his acting. 
Yeah. I'd say he has one of the biggest subplots, wouldn't you say? Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So. What's our, ne- our next theory? Cool. Um, our next theory is all about Dumbledore. Um, and much like our question of the week last week, the idea that Dumbledore knows the truth about everything. He's kind of the, the Albus of Oz character. He's, he's playing um, behind the curtain and controlling everything um, from behind the scenes. I mean, I mean, he is. Does anyone have the uh, have the book open? There's a great quote from Harry, where he's uh, talking to Harry and Hermione in the hospital wing, and he just basically describes how I think Dumbledore ruled everything. Does anybody have that open? He's a funny man, Dumbledore. I think he sort of wanted to give me a chance. That's that's it. That's the one. So so Harry basically says in this quote that uh, he he basically asserts that I think Dumbledore set this up. He wanted me to find the stone and get to uh, get to Voldemort to face him. Because that's I, I'm kind of owed that after my parents. So if that's the case, Dumbledore put Harry through a lot of, into a lot of danger. It wasn't just Harry's doing. Like he basically orchestrated this entire thing. Because I don't think Joe would have written this scene unless that was the truth. You know, he wouldn't have. She wouldn't have. Had I don't it. think he orchestrated it. Like he wouldn't have planned on Voldemort coming back. But he definitely tweaked and shaped it to be the way that he wanted it to be. He, but now we know that he knew Voldemort was at Hogwarts, right? Because yeah. he says that Harry... Alright, so how long did he know that? Is a good question. I don't... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. But it, but it sounds like, for what it, you know, at least when Harry was going down into the, into the trapdoor, he knew just what Harry was going to face down there. So yeah. it's possible that he made those tasks a bit a bit easier for such that Harry and the trio could go through. Yeah. We had know, this that... we had a bit of this discussion um last week where I was asking why um why Snape didn't tell Dumbledore and I've, there are so many comments on the forums telling me that about how I was wrong and how I forgot about the um the prince's tale later on um where we actually see Dumbledore and Snape talking about Quirrell and talking about their suspicions. So it's it's definitely definitely true that Dumbledore and Snape were both keeping an eye on Quirrell, and they both kind of they knew that he was a dark wizard, and probably they knew that Voldemort was there. Um, gotcha. Whether Snape or not knew it was Voldemort, we don't know. But they definitely right. knew to pull the strings. I mean, I mean, I I doubt it, but if if he knew that Harry was a Horcrux, you know, I very much doubt it. Could he have been trying to kill Harry here? Two birds with one stone. Voldemort and Harry in one. Maybe that's too crazy. I don't think that's mm, true. Yeah, I think that's a bit a bit much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I and mean Dumbledore does run down against... to save him. So Yeah. <laughs> Probably wrong. <laughs> One of the the biggest theories um, at the time, or at least for for a long while, um, was that Harry and Dumbledore might be related in some way. Um, lots of people thought that Albus could maybe be Harry's grandfather because we obviously don't have Harry's immediate family. We thought there might be some kind of connection there, which is a nice idea, but unfortunately didn't come true. Yeah, I never I never really could buy into this because I always would have figured that the surrounding wizarding community would have known, you know, because yeah. I mean, they know who Lily and James are obviously. And I don't think it's something that really could have been kept from Harry. So 
Especially because Dumbledore is like such a well-known kind of person. I'm sure that if he was the grandfather, Harry would have found out probably from yeah. Hermione. And we know it would have had to have been James's father because obviously it couldn't be Lily's. So, and we know that they are called the Potters when um, when Sirius talks about them. So, I really want to know more about James's family. I'm so. I really want to know more about all of that kind of stuff that is the details of the book that we never kind of get to see. Yeah. We'll probably get it. I hope so. I hope so too. I think that would probably Ooh. come under um, Prisoner when, when when Sirius is talking about it. Yeah. That that could work. Uh, yeah, that would be great. Yeah. We'll I mean, I mean see. We, we did talk about the fact that Dumbledore like becomes the, the parental figure you know, many times in the series, and especially when the cloak is uh, comes about, he acts for James and kind of gives the cloak to Harry. So, if not an actual family member, you know, Dumbledore is certainly certainly loves Harry as almost like a father. You know, looking after for him, looking yeah. after him. Definitely. Oh, I do like this next theory. <laughs> so yeah, the next one was definitely also uh, a huge fan theory at the time um, and that was the question of whether Dumbledore and McGonagall were in a relationship whether they were married or whether they were kind of secretly dating behind the scenes which of course <laughs> had a huge stop put to it as soon as someone asked the question of Joe, and she said no Dumbledore's gay so of course <laughs> that put a stop to that theory I just like to think that they go into London and shop together get some nice hats yep well are we sure that McGonagall didn't put on any moves? Put any moves on him? You know, I mean, she might have. You know, back <laughs> in the day. So <laughs> he's only like what, a hundred years older? Come on, I don't think he's that much older. <laughs> Jeez, I'm trying to give the man too many years, Noah. <laughs> older man. But I do now have the idea of you know Dumbledore and McGonagall being like Will and Grace or someone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> sitcom this is funny like i've never actually heard of this theory probably because this is like my first foray into like the potterverse community but i always thought dumbledore and mcgonagall had like a father-daughter relationship oh yeah that's true yeah definitely more likely given you know certain truths about his orientation yeah she's really probably i mean albus is probably really the only person that um uh, Minerva is really close to you know after she she loses her husband um I mean she doesn't have any family left really so she's really he's really her only friend you know I think you know as time goes on she she gets really close to Harry especially absolutely you know toward the end of the book when when Dumbledore is gone which just gets me emotional thinking about that scene but um I'm gonna move on uh but I think you know so there's definitely that I mean yeah they're they're obviously really close and it's it's a good relationship Definitely. It, it makes me wonder why he didn't tell her about the the Horcruxes. I, I isn't she the closest person he has at at Hogwarts? One of the closest. I think he tells more to Snape than her. Oh wait, you know that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think it might be just kind of like one of those safety things. Like if you don't know, you can't like get hurt or something like that. Whereas like Snape's more of a pawn. Like he's kind of protecting McGonagall by telling her nothing. Instead yeah, of, that's true. Oh. Because he knows if anything happens, I mean, she's the one that's gonna have to step up and 
uh, the the dangers it could present the school if she had information, so, those sort of things. Right. And she's so close to Harry as well. Like, if if she knew that Harry would eventually have to die, would she try and do oh something else to try and stop it? I yeah. think she would have. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine if she would have known that. Wow. Especially because, like, when Harry's body first shows up, isn't she the one that like screams and cries in the passage? I don't. Yeah, that maybe. Yeah, they may be right. And and Snape is, you know, he is he's both courageous and he can make the the right decision. Yeah. He knows what he can separate himself enough because he's done it so many times. To... Well, and plus the person that he the only person he ever really cared about is already gone and he's, you know, acting to to really just save the world and really that's all he has to lose there. I mean, he does protect Harry through the series. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's true. I guess inherently he does a well, not inherently, but he does just do a better job of making those tough decisions. I think in answer to these two two theories, the one about Harry and Dumbledore being family, or Dumbledore and McGonagall being in a relationship, the idea that Harry goes to Hogwarts and the one thing he didn't have is a loving family, so there he finds Dumbledore, who could be a father or grandfather figure, McGonagall, who kind of takes over the role of mother figure, as well as Molly does as well, Molly um, Weasley. Um, you get Sirius eventually, who is his godfather. You get Snape, who's kind of that moody uncle that no one really likes. Yeah. You've got this whole kind of family. All and Hagrid, the older brother, that'll home. pass him a drink even though he's underage. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> there you go. Or the drunken uncle. Yeah, there you go. That's better. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's very true. Cool. Well, those are definitely some good theories. Um yeah, I hadn't even thought about some of those for for a long time. So I'm glad you brought those up and you know <laughs> share with us your thoughts on those and other you know major theories from the book that we may have overlooked because we would be interested to uh, sort of ponder those as well. Yeah, um, and remember that the the book one discussion is is never over. You can always go back to the forums and and talk about it, even if we're we move on to for future books. You know, absolutely. I'm totally looking forward to reading those conversations. <laughs> Chamber of Secrets? No, the Philosopher's Stones to see what other theories people bring up. Yeah. Because there's probably a few that I can't even remember that were totally big at the time. Yeah. Yep. So the last big thing we're going to to cover for Philosopher's Stone is um, we're going to look at the covers of the books from many different countries, which I think is going to be really cool to just sort of do a quick run through of the graphical covers of all these books because they're obviously not all the same. So we uh, we went through all of the covers. Uh, well, I guess maybe not all of them, but a lot of the covers from many different countries. So as we're kind of going through these, feel free to do a quick Google image search so you can make sure you're seeing the same thing we are. Well, I mean, we can probably make them available. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, right? we will. That's true. Yeah, I think we're going to post them all on the forums for people to see. Good call. So yeah, we'll make them available for you to see. The first one we are uh, looking at is the cover of the Denmark edition of uh, Philosopher's Stone. So this one's kind of interesting because, I mean, it appears to me at least they're using the uh, pretty much the movie version of Harry Potter. It looks very much like young Daniel Radcliffe there to me. Um, yeah. So maybe this was maybe this came out a little later. Um, but there's also there's um he has a broom harry has a broom and it shows hogwarts in the background and some cavern something going under hogwarts obviously to represent you know where deep where the stone is is hidden 
So, and there's some lightning going on. Yeah, it looks um, like Harry is casting some lightning. Yeah. So, so that's I, interesting. First years can cast lightning spells. <laughs> so, it's like Lumos Maxima, <laughs> Maxima. Yeah. So this one pretty much chooses to, I guess, focus on you know Hogwarts and what is beneath Hogwarts, as well as featuring Harry's coming into his magic, I guess. Also, if you zoom in um, on the on the right. There's behind next to the castle. There's this little, uh, this little mountain. I'm not sure what it is. If you zoom in, there's an angry French face, or not French, but there's an angry face. <laughs> I, wow! The and all it. of our French French listeners are now upset with us. <laughs> it's 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 not. Oh my goodness! It, I don't wait. Where's the face again? It's uh, it's right. Uh, it's right next to the castle, on the right. I don't think it's, it's meant to be a face. I think it's just lines in of like stone and then a line oh. of trees to be the mouth. Rosie, I think it was meant to be a face, but if, <laughs> you, look, if you look, there's a mustache, and we, we'll we'll see if there are any faces in the next images for sure. But okay, this is just my I take an art analysis course at school. So, so the next cover we uh we took a look at is that of the uh, the French version, and um, we have right at the front three students harry hermione and ron with hedwig in his cage um the faces look very just obviously french i I think it's interesting how the different countries you know the artwork sort of reflects the people um but we have hogwarts in the background and a witch looks like a witch Um, It, it does i think because uh you know witchcraft was just kind of tied to witches and stuff and even looking at the hats they have that kind of that witch look yeah. So maybe, so maybe you know, in this first round of Harry Potter, they were maybe France associated it more with, uh, with witchcraft, modern myths of witchcraft and stuff, instead of like what. Yeah. So, it looks much more traditional, much more like. Mm-hmm. Um, if anyone's ever read the Jill Murphy series, the the Worst Witch, I know that a lot of people in England will have read that. Um, it looks a lot more like a kind of traditional idea of a wizarding school. Yeah, doesn't it? And they're they're all in their cloaks. So maybe this is sort of some a scene we could expect from Bow Battens. Maybe. You know. But in blue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not the black. Alright, and the next cover we took a look at is from Finland. And um, this one's pretty interesting because we have the the main scene is that of the uh, the large chess chessboard with Harry, Ron, and Hermione um, at the forefront. So I the thing I found most interesting is how they drew Hermione um her hair just seems a little too dark um to me what do you guys think I think this is probably the first book cover or first picture I've seen of Hermione where her teeth are actually pretty big like described in the story yeah yeah that too yeah everyone's pretty oblong um there's actually some red in her hair Mm -hmm. I see but I'm really looking at the the chess pieces you know in the American when you think about the movie and in the books they're kind of faceless and but regal and this one yeah. they have character and they're kind of they're kind of goofy looking actually <laughs> it's interesting yeah i, I want to hear them talk so badly because i just <laughs> want to hear the voice that's going to come out of those right i can i can imagine that queen smacking ron in the face and that's kind <laughs> of what went down as opposed to a big stone hand brutally yeah. hitting harry uh, sorry ron to the floor yeah <laughs> i like their outfits too like it looks like one of those weird jester looking kind of outfits yeah so that one was an amusing one I thought uh, yeah certainly 
Um, the next one is the Italian version, and I'm not really sure what's going on here. <laughs> because I have no idea why they are mice or rats or whatever yeah, they need to be. Yeah, what, what's up with my, my brother the mouse here? <laughs> <laughs> because we have a chessboard. Um, it's not the life-size version, because I, I'm assuming this is... Is this Harry looking over it? It's hard. I, I would. I can't imagine who else it would be. So it's Harry overlooking a chessboard that is not life size, and he's chilling with a mouse. So <laughs> I feel I feel terrible because I was actually just in Italy and I picked up this copy of Philosopher's Stone in Italian, started to read it, realized I couldn't read Italian, and I I asked my buddy like why there were there were mice, and he told me the answer, but I forgot. Uh, what? You got to hit him up. We got to know. His name is Gregorio. He's a great guy. He Italian fans, let us know why are yeah. there mice on this cover? Yeah, because that, that I, I'm sure there's an interesting me, reason. I think he told me that this scene is actually at the at the Dursley house, and for some reason the mice symbolize uh, like that area. There's some mention of a mouse, maybe, and those figurines are like the figurines he sees in that he's playing with in the very beginning. Hmm. Or maybe I'm thinking soldiers. of movie canon right now. I don't know, but it. But if Italian, if there's an Italian listener out there who can clear this up for us, that would be very, very helpful. Definitely. All right, and so the next one is the uh, the Spanish version, and this one's very. It seems very plain, um, in that there's not a lot going on because uh, we pretty much just have Dumbledore here, who's with who has a book and a staff, and there's some stars going on. <laughs> but yeah, he looks I mean, cheerful though. It's very happy. He does. I wonder what he's reading though. Um, is he reading Hogwarts of History, maybe? <laughs> Perhaps. Perhaps, you know, like reciting one of those weird lines to the students at the the, intro, the opening feast. I don't know. Is it a Hogwarts History in Spanish? Uh, yeah, that that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, that, actually thinking back to what, calling out the Italian listeners... All of our listeners who are from, you know, different countries or could be associated with these countries, we would especially love to hear your opinions on any of these books because that would be really um, insightful. Especially considering translations often change words uh, with new meanings and we're, we're interested in your insights right. about, like, we, we, um, we're going to talk about it in a later episode, but the fact that in the United States it's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, in the UK and elsewhere it's Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, you know, Sometimes words have a great like words have great uh, weight on the meaning of how we interpret things. So if we could compare different cultures and different translations, that'd be excellent. And uh, we had, there was actually an episode of uh, MuggleNet Academia, our other podcast, where it covered translations of the series and, and differences there. I think that might have been the last episode. And you can find that podcast on MuggleNet. We feature that every other week or so. A new episode comes out. Yeah. So the next one is is probably my favorite cover. Um, it's the Ukrainian version, and there's so much going on on this cover. It's it's brilliant. Um, this is like abstract art right here. Yeah. So I mean, we have we have Harry at the front, who's on a broom in his Gryffindor robes, playing Quidditch, about to catch the snitch. On the right, we have you know the Hogwarts castle. On the left, we have Dumbledore who becomes a castle I don't, is that a castle like the his lower half below the broom yeah and his hat is part of that like a tower so that's that's really interesting you know that yeah. Dumbledore sort of is Hogwarts I don't know um, that kind of goes with our what we've been talking about he's like this ever-present force 
you yeah. know, much more than a character, kind of part of the landscape everywhere. Yeah. So that really comes out in this picture here. And we have pretty much every, almost every important character, you know, littered throughout the forest. We have Ron holding a chessboard. We have Hermione holding a bunch of books. We have a bunch of Hogwarts students. We have Snape, Norbert, Professor McGonagall. Farther... I love the tiny little Hagrid underneath Harry's knee. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hagrid's <laughs> there too. And, um, it, and then farther in the background, we have a unicorn and a centaur who seem to be chatting it up, you know. Yeah, they're just hanging out. <laughs> so, chilling. But yeah, there's so much going on on this cover. I love it. It's it's my favorite. I love it. All right, that is Caleb's favorite Ukraine. Yeah, excellent. Nice work. So then we come to um, some of the ones that we're we're at least more familiar with, and the UK, the original UK version has um, has Harry with his looks like a Gryffindor scarf, but. I guess at that point he really shouldn't have a Gryffindor scarf. But he's got his, his bag on and he's in front of the Hogwarts Express. About to get run over, possibly. Yeah, he might be. <laughs> so, and it shows the nine and three quarters, which, you know, I, I'm wondering. So maybe you can speak to this, Rosie, because you would have seen the cover before you read it. Would yep. you have noticed that and been like, wait, what? Why, why is it nine and three quarters? That's true. Um, I never did, I don't think noticed that before i think i just kind of leapt straight in and read the book yeah um but it does kind of everything about it looks magical doesn't it like just having the old steam train the purple smoke with stars in it um even the smoke at the bottom with the stars Mm -hmm. um it all just makes you want to read and you look at the look at the stardust especially with the boring uh, old train next to it the exhaust at the top and the bottom of the the train yeah yeah. But doesn't Harry look nerdy? <laughs> he does. Yeah, and there's Boy, definitely yeah. the contrast between the Hogwarts Express train, you know, and the other train that's to the right. Good point. Definitely. So, that's interesting. And? So, yeah, we threw in... Yeah, Rosie, I'm going to let you, you take these because these are uh, UK editions. Sure. Um, so, why don't you take um, them? A couple of years ago, they decided to kind of reboot the entire um, of the Harry Potter covers for children um, and they replace them with these signature editions um, which is a white cover with the golden Harry Potter signature on the top um, and a a kind of a key image from each of the books Um, and for Philosopher's Stone it is the the queen with a sword, the chess piece um, attacking the knight Um, and it's just a very kind of simple image um, but quite effective, I think, still, but not quite as nice as the first cover. Um, and then we've also got the the adult edition, um, which came out, I think, towards um, the kind of Goblet of Fire time. They they brought out all of these adult editions in one go. Um, and it's a very kind of simple photographic cover, um, which shows a photo of the the philosopher's stone itself a, a gemstone that's supposed to be kind of a blood red gemstone which is the philosopher's stone and i've always really liked those adult edition covers they're they're really kind of bringing the magic to life i think rosie i gotta say these uk um covers are they kind of have a, a subtlety to them that the other covers don't they do you don't know, they? Mm. yeah i wonder if that says something about that you know your culture i mean I don't know. Um, I guess we we like to 
to use our imagination and we like to read the stories and get uh, the, our pictures from there rather than having it all presented to us on the, the front. We like to just show kind of one very specific scene. Right. All right. Cool. Hmm. So <laughs> moving on to the U.S. covers. Caleb and I will take over that. Yeah, you go for it. No, I talked about all the other other countries, so you can take these. All right, we have <laughs> up front Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone cover, notice with a noticeably different title. We're going to talk about that on our on our next episode, maybe or in two episodes. But just looking at the artwork, we have Harry, you know, in this iconic cover, flying through the one of two of the pillars, getting ready to catch the snitch. Um, you know, probably not not very canon but like you know this would more likely be the rememberall if he was flying through like the castle but in any case he's getting the snitch um his glasses are askew we have a unicorn running majestically in the back and we have a uh, three-headed dog fluffy in the castle just behind so we know there's that there's some, there's some danger and uh thinking about the back cover it's, we don't have it here right now but i believe dumbledore is on the back and a kind of a either quirrell or voldemort skulking towards the forest like i just love the colors in this this uh this cover very vibrant and uh you know it might be it might not be kind of immensely detailed but you know very bright colors that would certainly certainly attracted me as a i guess a, a 12 year old 13 year old sure i've never realized before how perfectly starkid managed to get their costuming like that the outfit that darren chris wears as harry um, throughout at least the sequel I think the first one as well is definitely that outfit isn't it it's the yellow top with the red stripe oh well done Starkid for getting that so perfectly <laughs> and he's also got a cape has, has Harry always had a cape that we didn't know about I don't know I think that's supposed to be just magical or Quidditch but yeah <laughs> makes him a superhero yeah it's very heroic I like that's a good addition but you don't get that cape in the other in the other parts I think uh that might have been Mary Grand Prix and Scholastic trying to grab some of the superhero passion in the United States, maybe. Who knows? But it, it kind of speaks to, I, I would say it speaks to American culture. We like, we have high-flying Harry in danger and like, with lots of colors. That is America right there. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Very gaudy. Oh, man. And, uh, oh, some some mysterious force it might have been Dumbledore put the back cover of the of the cover on yeah. the in our dock. So we have an owl, we have Dumbledore, a key floating in the back. Yeah, I just love this US cover. It's excellent. And Caleb, if you want to take the anniversary edition. Yeah, so in two thousand eight, uh Scholastic released um an anniversary edition for uh Sorcerer's Stone. So in this one, um, we have Harry um, waving his wand, throwing up some orange sparkly dust going everywhere. And behind him is uh, what we have deduced to be Ollivander um, and Hagrid. So it's, you know, this is probably the scene in Ollivander's where um, Harry's finally getting his wand. And Ollivander seems very intrigued, probably because he knows, you know, this momentous event of Harry cho being chosen by the wand that is the brother of Voldemort's wand. Um, so it's definitely a very different take than the original Scholastic cover. You know, it's much I, more reminiscent of the English ones where you would take a scene and really kind of illustrate that. Yeah, I don't like it as much, 
honestly. <laughs> I, I like the originals classic. Maybe it's just because, you know, that's what I always had, but I don't know. I don't think this scene is... It's certainly important for the series. Maybe that's why they went with it, but I don't think it's the best representation for the book. Yeah, the cover is a lot darker. (laughs) But look at the chair. Look at the details of it. Like, the chair is covered in old discarded ones that aren't the one that Harry eventually goes for. It's a really beautiful kind of image, but perhaps not best at selling the book. Yeah. No, I see what you mean. That is beautiful. And and really the stardust coming out of the wand is, uh, and if you look at the, the jacket and all of it, like very colorful, like it's, uh, it's like the magic light kind of come, whatever it touches creates different shades on, on all the figures. It's cool. Yeah. Well, that pretty much covers the covers that we, uh, wanted to talk about. So, um, you know, let us, as you take a look at these as we're talking about them, let us know which one is your favorite, which one you think represents the story best. And especially like, you know, we mentioned earlier, if you are from one of these countries or have one of these covers or know the translation, you know, let us know what you think about those. Jessica, what's your favorite? Mine? I like the Ukraine one. I'm going to have to go with Caleb on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Good call. It just seems like the whole story's right there on the front of the cover. Yeah, it's a really good one. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go with the original UK, though. Original and best. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to go with the original US. The, the coolest. <laughs> now, with the US edition, um, the US cover, what edition is that back cover on? Because mine doesn't look like that. Yeah, mine really? actually, mine doesn't either. Mine's um, uh, a faceless hand holding a candle. Is that what you have? Yeah, with the green drapes like tied up with the rope. Yep. Yeah. Oh, wow. Were there two back covers released? Yeah, I, so I guess so. Uh, my book's from, like... There are two for England as well. Huh. Well, maybe there's a panel. There's, like, a panel and a back. No. You know Interestingly, I mean? for, for the original UK cover, they the original print run is different. Um, they were supposed to have Dumbledore in the back cover, but they have a different wizard that no one quite knows who it is. Um, whether the illustrator just got it wrong or whether they just decided to have someone a bit more special. I don't know, but no, my no, sister owns the original co- uh, original back cover and I own the the more recent one. So we have both editions in our house. Hmm. That's incredibly mysterious. <laughs> hmm. But yeah, so, any thoughts on the covers? Put put those in the forums and we'll be sure to put these in the show notes if you so if you're listening to the episode, hopefully you've gone through and seen them with us. And if you, you know, if you can give us some artwork if you designed your own cover that would be really cool to see you know people yeah, different people's yeah. takes on it because we love to feature you guys awesome artwork yeah i'm actually the uh the fan art head fan art supervisor over at mugglenet.com so send all artwork to fanart at staff.mugglenet.com or no at staff.mugglenet.com and i'll get it and then i'd be happy i'll be happy to feature it everywhere so this is a prime opportunity to show your artistic talents all right, now it's time for the posed question of the week. I am back to deliver it. You did a great job, Rosie, last week, but here we go. The last one for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. As we were discussing before, it was the scene where um, Quirrell was facing Harry, and uh, you know, all, everything he, he did, he was getting burned by Harry just by touching his skin. So Voldemort ordered him to use his wand, and he was about to use a curse, but Harry you know, cleverly put his hands in his face, stopping Quirrell. Our question is real simple. What would have happened to Harry if Quirrell had been successful and used the, the Avada Kedavra spell? 
we, we really would like to know, would Harry have been destroyed or would Lily's love have protected him in another way, you know, in some way? Would he have got another King's Cross experience? Personally, I think he wouldn't, but what do you guys think? We're throwing it to you, and we're going to have the, that question on the front page of our Alohomora site. Great. We're looking forward to those responses. And we want to take the time now to give a special thanks to Jessica for joining us this week as our guest host. Um, I hope you had a good time. You definitely put in some good thoughts. So, <laughs> I think Thanks, guys, for letting me come on the show. Appreciate it. No, of course. Did you enjoy it? <laughs> oh, it was fun. <laughs> I bet it was. <laughs> so, and she's uh, once again she's wise old baker in the forums. Uh, she's you know chatting everywhere, and she's also written a bunch of essays for us. And uh, please continue to do so because I'm the one uploading those, and those are always great fun to read. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Sweet. Great. <laughs> and if any of you out there listening to the show right now would like to be on it. Um, in one of our future episodes you can do that by um, being a, a real presence on both of our forums and our um, and our archives you can submit anywhere and you can really just share your thoughts with us um, but if you really want to be on the podcast we want you to send us an email at alohomorapodcast at gmail.com with a short recording of yourself telling us something interesting you've discovered in the Harry Potter series that you think that we should talk about and we'll take a listen and get back in touch with you. Um, please remember that you you do need to have appropriate audio equipment when you are recording, though. Um, we've had a lot of comments about you guys about how much we've improved our audio quality, and that's all down to kind of finding better equipment. So thank you guys um, for appreciating that, and just help us out by finding some good microphone um, and recording equipment to do that as well. Yep, and just a reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at our handle, which is at MN. And we just want to give one last reminder to follow, make sure you are following us on Twitter because our next show will be released during LeakyCon, which is really, really soon, and we'll all be there. And um, we're going to be doing something special at LeakyCon, and if you're not following us on Twitter, you won't be in the know. So make sure that you jump on that and follow us for updates. And you can also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash OpenTheDumbledore. And you can also listen right on that page. All you have to do is click on the podcast tab, choose an episode, and enjoy. And you can also follow us on Tumblr at mnalohomora.tumblr.com. And don't forget about our phone number where you can, like, you can respond to us via voicemail. We'll play your voicemail message just like we did for Patrick. And that's at 206 go Albus. Uh, the number exact is 206-462-5287. Your, just make sure that your voicemails are in response to comments from the, the show just before. Please keep in mind this is a U.S. phone number, so for our international listeners, you will be charged if you call. Make sure to also check out our website, alohomora.mugglenet.com. We have great forums there. You can post artwork, essays, and connect with fans who are also listening to the show. That's and that's also where we're going to notice you if we, and we may invite you to be on the show. You can also send us email for any messages regarding the show, any comments you have, to alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. Um, don't forget that you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed or subscribe or favorite our Libsyn's channel. Yeah, and be, be prepared if you want to. Uh, review us on iTunes because that's always really great. We love to hear your feedback directly there because that's one of our biggest uh, media portals 
So I believe that ends the show, episode 8. I'm Noah Freed. I'm Caleb Graves. And I'm Rosie Morris. Thank you for listening to episode 8 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. I got it. Guys, there's a fly in here. I'm gonna kill it. (laughs) (laughs) But what if that fly was Rita Skeeter? Oh no. (laughs) And Noah's run run as an animal protectionist ends here. It's alright. Yeah, think of the unicorns, Noah. (laughs) What happened? Nothing. Okay. Shut up. 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 Shut up.